worse this time. This, well, you're, you not, been, you're not my music are teacher. Are you sick today? I'm not. Uh, I'm sick of seeing your face, but I'm just kidding. No, you're, you're my brother, and I love <laughs> you. Love me. You, you have to love me. It's not. It's not a choice. Hello, welcome back. This is Vadim and Sergey. I forgot his name, so I made him say it. Uh, we are the mentors, and this is a show where we provide insights into how entrepreneurs and creators get their ventures off the ground to hopefully help them uh, overcome some of the obstacles that are faced in the critical early days. Today on the podcast, we're very excited to have Mara McGrew, who started her own soap company called Soapply. Uh, it's a very unique company because it's a soap company with a social good focus. So each bottle of Soapply helps fund water, sanitation, and hygiene initiatives around the world. Uh, and it's perfect for people with super sensitive skin or people with allergies. Now, she launched a little over a year ago, and the business is primarily e-commerce. So you can find them on SoapplyBox.com. That's S-O-A-P. PLYbox.com, but she's recently launched in the retail space as well with a few partners that you may have heard of, such as West Elm and Credo Beauty. And we're going to talk about exactly how she got her product on the shelves of those retail locations in this episode. She's also been covered in New York Times, Food and Wine, Bustle, CNBC, and she's recently caught some attention of a couple of celebrity supporters, uh, which we're gonna talk about a little bit later on in this episode, but as most entrepreneurs know, if you can get the intention of celebrities early on for your product, it could be very, very helpful. So um, we're really excited to have you on the show today and to hear your story. Thank you so much, Mara, for being here. So Mara, I'm, I'm curious, I know that you started this business uh, in uh, a bit of a, a non-traditional way. There wasn't necessarily a product that you had in mind first, but you had a problem that you were very passionate about solving. Can you tell us how you identified this problem and why it's so important for you to find a solution? Yeah, so I was living and working over in Africa and I had actually taken a job over there building out the impact uh, component of a for-profit tourism company. And while I was on the ground there, I saw this product and service gap around hand washing with soap specifically. And really the reality of what that looked like is I would go into a community and the first time that we were interacting with the school, um, we would see that all of the students were healthy, right? Um, the next time we would come back a few months later, there were children that were out of school that were missing class because of dysentery and respiratory disease. And then a few months later came back and honestly, would show up to this school and see that there were students that were never coming back. And for me, that was baffling. Why, right? Diarrheal disease, respiratory disease, those are preventable diseases. And they're preventable by something that's so simple that you and I do every single day. Um, These diseases are preventable by the simple act of hand washing with soap. And as I looked into the problem, I realized, you know, it wasn't just in these one or two or three or four or five or 18 communities I was working in. Um, This is something that's true across the globe. And actually 1.7 million children under the age of five continue to die every single year because of diseases that we could prevent through the simple act of hand washing with soap. So... A lot of times people are uh, people don't know where to start when they want to start a business. Uh, clearly, this is one of those examples where you happen to be in Africa, you happen to sort of come across this problem that was right in front of your face, 
and you became passionate about it. So now tell us what happened between there and coming back to the States and actually realizing, you know what, I want to start a business around this and uh, how can I solve a problem here? And I think that, you know, even something interesting to dig into is the fact that it's not obvious how you can turn this into a business because you're trying to serve customers that may not even be, may not know that it's a problem. You have to educate them, may not be able to afford uh, to buy soap perhaps. Uh, so I'm sure others have tried solving it. How did you figure out a business that could actually have that impact, but also be a self-sustaining business? What was the process that you went through to to try to solve this problem once you figured out that you want to start a company around it? So when I saw the initial problem on the ground, the question was, you know, is this a problem that is local or is this global? Um, and very quickly, I realized this is not just a local problem. Um, I moved back from Africa, moved back to the New York City. I started talking with anyone and everyone that I could, um, folks at the World Bank, the World Health Organization, the UN, the public-private partnership for hand washing, you name it. And what I found was there is this gap globally, right, around hand washing with soap. And that's all well and good. But like you said, that is a more traditional nonprofit problem. So you would expect that to be solved by local governments, uh, country governments, federal governments, or um, even nonprofits, but not traditionally solved by a for-profit company. So when I kind of set out with this idea of supply, it was really sell soap that gets soap in the hands that need it. Simple, period. The truth is, I could have done that, but that's a marketing scheme. I knew that that was a marketing play, and what I would need is a lot of money to put behind my marketing. Hmm. Um, and what I wanted to do was not just create a product that said it was doing good, but actually served a need here in the US. And the question was whether or not we had a gap to fill. So globally, we knew that there was a need. We needed to put soap in the hands that needed it around the world. But here in the U.S., access to soap is not an issue. We're sitting in New York City recording this podcast, and we could walk into any coffee shop in the city and wash our hands. Access is not a problem. But here in the U.S., what I quickly realized is that while access is not a problem, there is a problem. And the problem around soap here in the U.S. is safety. So there's two issues. Here in the U.S., the FDA doesn't regulate soap, and it's not required to be labeled. Hmm. Um, so it's not being tested for safety, and if you turn it over, you don't necessarily know what's in it. And that's okay, assuming that what's in it is safe. And I started asking, because I didn't know. Was the soap I was using safe? I assumed so. I've been using it all my life. I hope you guys have been using it too. Did your mother teach you well? <laughs> pretty dirty. Even, even Soviet Belarusians. Uh, we used to shower once soap. a week. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but we did use soap that one time a week. It's true. Thanks, Mom. Say, here we are, still alive. Wow. And and so uh, you saw that it wasn't necessarily a problem here, but uh, but if those if the soap that you were putting on your skin is healthy or good for you, that is an issue. I, I wasn't aware of this. So. Access to soap, like I said, is not an issue. Safety of soap, maybe, was kind of the aha moment. And for me, I am someone who cares what I'm putting into and on my body. It is a Saturday or Sunday in New York City. You can find me at the farmer's market, right? I'm paying probably too much for local produce that is being picked by farmers, that is being sold by farmers, and I know where it's coming from. And 
you know, I, I buy heirloom tomatoes, I buy organic milk. And when it came to the soap that I was buying, I was still reaching for whatever was closest to me on the shelf. And I didn't know that it was an issue. Um, as I kind of started looking into it, I realized, you know, no one knows what's in their soap. Um, and unfortunately that's not a great thing because not only does the FDA not regulate it and require it for be it, for it to be tested for safety or labeled, but, um, soap in the U S at the time we were formulating over 2,100 soap products on store shelves contained ingredients that were either, um, unsafe for daily use because they were acting as known carcinogens or endocrine disruptors. That's crazy. Ingredients like triclosan. For example, hmm. well, first of all, I'm going to throw away all this <laughs> uh, after this. But um, you mentioned something really cool, which is you know when you came back here, you started doing the initial research and you met with the UN, the World Health Organization. How did you even get those meetings? I'd say I didn't take no for an answer. Yeah, uh, there were a lot of emails that went unanswered, and there were a lot of connections that I dug for. Hmm. Right, so it wasn't necessarily my best friend. Um, but I was lucky in that I had done a little bit of work for the UN in the past and that offered me an open door, maybe not open and a jar door <laughs> that I could, uh, finagle my way into. Mm-hmm. And I'd say that's how it happened. Yeah. Did you, uh, how did you position, like, how did you get them to say, yes, okay, persistence is obviously important, but how did you make them care? What did you actually say in your in your note or in your introduction to, to make them want to respond and meet with you? Was it like, a, I'm doing research, I want feedback, what was it? I think in those initial emails, I maybe was still in Africa. Mm. I was writing from the field and said, you know, I'm writing with this idea. I see this gap and I know it's there and it's not just me. It is, you know, the local stakeholders, it's the principals, it's the medical professionals, it's the local government. Um, and there's a need. Why isn't it being met? Can you help me find some answers? Can you point me to literature? And I just started reading all of the research I could, all the books that people would send me any references um, so that I had a deeper understanding because the truth is I had a very, first-hand experience with this Mm. and my experience was emotional and to take that and say is this personal experience that i'm having is this something that is larger than just this that was kind of my question and uh, those initial contacts really came from me just inquiring well so you you came back to the states you identified a, a almost bigger problem in that Soap isn't regulated, which is surprising to me. I bet most people don't know that. Uh, and, and you're right. We put it on our bodies every day, and yet we don't even know what's in it. So soap isn't regulated. It has some terrible um, ingredients a lot of the time. So you identified a problem, at least that you had with it. How did you know that other people would care about this as well? Okay, well, still wash your hands. Soap is not terrible. Let me <laughs> clarify. Soap is very good. Um, there was this question, right, where I said there's there is soap out there. There are soap products on store shelves that have ingredients with questionable health or safety concerns. I am someone who, when it comes to that sort of thing, would say, you know what? I'd rather not risk it. Hmm. And um, when it came to actually identifying, you know, the product that supply was going to be creating, that was a different thing, right? So um, when I came back, like I said, um, Supply kind of started with this very basic idea. Sell soap that gets soap in the hands that need it. 
that's it. Then from there, the question was, okay, well, what kind of soap do we sell? What kind of soap do people buy? And I had no idea, right? So I started asking all of my friends, all of my family, all of my, you know, first time friends of friends introductions, Mm -hmm. what kind of soap do you use? What's in it? Why do you use it? How much do you pay for it? And um, I realized very quickly that one, people knew the brand that they were buying. They didn't know what was in it. And they didn't really seem to care about anything else. Um, but they were using it, right? And that was, that's a good thing. And so honestly, at that point, the kind of trajectory of supply became, again, personal and selfish. And I grew up with eczema. So I have crazy sensitive skin. And when I was little, a lot of soap products would cause me to break out. So I would wash my hands. And then all of a sudden, I would have eczema all over my hands and my wrists. And I got to the point where I wasn't washing my hands when I'd see certain brands of soap. Hmm. So for me, that was a personal experience. And I thought, you know, I've never actually talked about that. I've never come back from a bathroom where I didn't wash my hands, sit down at a table and be like, guys, I didn't wash my hands. (laughs) Um, And so I just said, you know what, if I'm having this problem Other people have sensitive skin. They've got to be having this problem too. There should be a soap product out there that I can use and that others like me can use. Um, It just so happened, unfortunately, just before uh, we were formulating, my mom had been diagnosed with cancer and was going through chemo. And when she was going through chemo, I flew home, um, home to Colorado. When I sat down with her and the doctor, the doctor handed us a long list of products, uh, just a sheet, right, of things that she needed to avoid and be wary of. And one of um, the very first things listed was soap. And when we asked about this, you know, at that point, I wasn't obsessed with soap. And um, when we asked about it, the reason that was given to us as to why we needed to be careful of it is that one, most soaps on the market are actually detergents. They're not true soaps, Hmm. but those are extremely harsh. And when you're going through chemo, you are very sensitive. And um, on top of that, most soaps on the market actually are scented whether through synthetic fragrances or essential oils. And if you're going through chemo, you're extremely sensitive to scent. So my mom was already nauseous. She was having trouble using soap. Basically, come full circle, I'm starting this soap company. I say, you know what? I had sensitive skin. I couldn't wash my hands. My mom was going through chemo. She couldn't wash her hands at a point where she probably needed to wash her hands more than ever. Um, And how can I create a product that, people like me, people that are going through chemo, newborn babies um, can all use, but also be effective enough that a doctor can use it. You know, my ranch hand friends out in Colorado can use it. Um, And then while we're at it, how do we look at just the full spectrum of it um, to go even deeper and say, how do we make this a product that isn't just better for us as consumers, but that takes into mind what the environmental impact is? And that then, you know, getting back to why I was starting the company that also pays it forward, that offers an opportunity um, to other people around the globe. Hmm. So you clearly from either personal experience um, for yourself or your family, you knew that this was a big enough problem to tackle. So what did you do next? Literally, what was the next step? I mean, did you just uh, make the soap at home or, you know, what was the process there? Okay, I will tell you. 
I haven't shared this before, hmm. but the very first thing I did was decide I needed to learn how to make soap. Mm. And I did have a chemistry background. Um, and so thought back to my chemistry days and knew that, I mean, I guess you know about soap making for one of two reasons, I think, either because you remember from chemistry or because you love Fight Club. <laughs> yeah. Fight Club, I love Fight Club. Definitely Fight Club for us. Um, so I wasn't interested in making soap from human fat, mm, okay. but I was a little bit more interested in uh, plant-based oils. <laughs> and what I did is I basically went to the library by the way, shout out to the library. I love the library. It's like the original co-working space and it's free. <laughs> They've been uh, innovating for hundreds of years. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Benjamin Franklin. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. New York Public Library, Colorado, all the libraries. Love them. Um, anyway, so went to the library, got as many books I could as I could about soap making and read them. And mm -hmm. then ordered everything I needed, um, including face masks. Um, so, you know, soap is made through a process called saponification. It's a chemical reaction. You're taking fatty acids and you're combining them with a lye. And, you know, in this case, I was interested, like I said, in combining uh, plant-based oils with lye and producing soap. So the very first thing that I was doing was just making bar soap. I just knew I was never going to be the one that was producing it. But I thought, if I'm going to do this, I should know what it takes to even make something. Yeah. Um, and so I met with soap makers in New York City. I met with them in Brooklyn and back in my home state, Colorado. Um, and then from there, went on a journey to not make it myself, but to go to some of the best soap makers I could find and come with a list of things I was hoping for and see what we could do together. So traveled all over the U.S. and landed on um, a few soap makers up in Vermont who have been making soap for over 20 years, who are crafting soap and it is a true art, um, and that could take some of the restrictions and the hopes and dreams that I had in terms of formulating a product and make it a reality. Wow, I love that. You uh, you didn't just delegate it to somebody else. You didn't um, you know, say, I need to hire somebody that can uh, make this for me, a chemist or something. Uh, you went out and learned yourself how to do it first, became an expert because you know what you're starting a soap company maybe you should know how soap is made uh and then once you had the insight once you uh knew that okay these are the ingredients that i want you could control the process and then find somebody that can actually do it the way that you want it to be done yeah it's so it's so critical no matter what product you're building to understand what goes into the creation of that product if you're building software you don't have to be an engineer but you can learn a little bit of html or javascript and put together an app so that you know what it takes for an engineer to build a product that's why a lot of the most successful ceos actually rose up from let's say uh working in uh, in in the lowest part of an organization and seeing every part of what it takes to to bring a product to the customers and understanding the business enough where they can then know how to bring a great product to market. So you found this supplier that could work within your supplier. restrictions. Supplier. <laughs> yes. Keep uh, the soap puns coming. I love all We make the worst jokes. Podcast. <laughs> and so how did you get, tell us about your first sale. How did you get your first sale or first couple of sales? Okay. So between finding the soap maker and making the first sale, there were a few hurdles. I'll say opportunities. <laughs> and 
obviously, you know, we had the soap itself. That was the most important thing. Uh, what I set out to do with supply was to prove that my idea was more than an idea. The hope was that I could prove that there was a market. There was a market greater than me and my mom, right? Uh, you guys are a great market, though. We're a great market, but a market of two, and the, the margins don't work out. <laughs> You've done the math. Yeah. Uh, so, I, I mean, we had done a lot of market research. Right. It wasn't just me saying this is a personal need. It was looking at trends. It was looking at consumer behavior. It was also, you know, talking with people, a lot of people. Mm. And then coming back and saying, okay, so where do we invest and what do we invest in first? And the question for me was getting a minimal viable product up. And I wanted to get, you know, the product itself in its finalized state, meaning the soap itself, the soap that is, we are, I should clarify, supply is liquid soap. Mm -hmm. um, so getting the liquid soap inside the bottle exactly how we wanted it. Um, and so I started the company with $5,000 that I had saved up and not very much to save, save more. <laughs> <laughs> and um, had basically invested that in the product itself. And my background was more environmental. It was more conservation-based. And when it came to the packaging, I was obsessing. When it came to ensuring that we were going to market with a product that we could actually test, it was how do we get there quickest? And so we invested in the product itself, like I said. So actually crafted the soap, um, bottled it in recycled glass bottles, um, printed directly on the bottle itself. But it was not good. I won't curse but um, <laughs> it was kind of crappy. And just the fact that, you know, when you're printing on glass, we're in recycled glass, right? And when you're printing on glass, you're having to do big print runs. And with $5,000, you can't afford to do big print runs. So I was hustling around Brooklyn trying to find printers who would even consider doing runs of our size um, and found one. And the ink was wrong, right? So it wouldn't last with water and soap. No. Basically, all this to say, um, when we launched, we had our soap in the recycled glass bottles with the bottle label printed directly on it, but with the wrong ink, with the wrong cap. Um, and we had a website that was up. And it was an e-commerce subscription website. We were only offering prepaid pre annual subscriptions. And what I did is I wrote a very pleading email to 16 people, um, most of them family, a few of them friends, telling them exactly what I was doing, why I was doing it, and where I wanted to go, and said, help me. You know, invest in this, buy a subscription, pay for the year, help me grow. And all 16 of those people subscribed mm -hmm. and that obviously brought in working capital and not only did they subscribe but they shared it and then their friends subscribed hmm. and that working capital went into our pool and then they shared it and in a week and a half we sold more than i was hoping to in two and a half months which meant uh-oh uh, that ink that's now running on all of the bottles isn't just going to my family, who's very forgiving and loving, <laughs> um, but also some people who don't know me and aren't as forgiving and loving. Um, and so at that point, we did have a little bit more money and could start, you know, solving some of the problems, one, that we knew were there, and two, that were 
being brought to our attention, right? Because you guys know, you start a company, you think you know everything, you know nothing. (laughs) You know nothing, questions always come up and you just have to kind of figure it out along the way. But that's one of the fun things about entrepreneurship as well. And I think that's such a cool story. You know, people obsess over how do I get my first customers? Where do I go? You went to your family, basically. You went to your friends um, because luckily this is one of those products that anybody could use it. And because it has a social good component to it, because you care about the ingredients, you probably started noticing that other people care as well. And wow, wait a second, people that you don't even know care as well. And through word of mouth, you started to grow, um, it sounds like. Well, something also important to note here um, in, in how you set yourself up here in the beginning when you launched, uh, you gave yourself that quick win in that first week and a half by focusing on people that you know would support you. It ended up translating to even more sales than you expected. And then you were forced to catch up and actually figure out how to make your product even better. And it's really important for any entrepreneur to figure out how can you give yourself those quick bumps along the way because especially in the first couple of months, but really the first year, there's going to be so many challenges that you have to overcome that you have to have some pull, you have to have some wins along the way that tell you, hey, I should continue doing this, right? Um, Yeah, it's hard to keep on pushing all the time, but when you get a bunch of customers, all of a sudden, you just do the work because there's no choice. No choice. And you feel motivated too, I'm sure. So you you also have a really cool story about how you started getting into retail distribution. Can you tell us how that came about, how how you actually uh, broke into that initially, uh, other than just e-commerce? Yes. So to tell our retail story, we actually have to start before supply launched. Mm. So obviously I come back from living and working in Africa to start supply. I moved into an apartment in Brooklyn and was working still with my old company and was formulating, getting things set. And we were a week out from sending this email um, to launch supply. And I had quit my job and was moving out of that Brooklyn apartment and was moving to be closer to the supply office so I could work day and night. (laughs) And I left behind a bottle of supply in that minimal viable product bottle. So the product itself was right, but you know, the the ink was running. And um, the bottle next to the sink, uh, while it might not have looked perfect, it turns out that the new tenant at the apartment uh, took a liking to it. And not only used the product and saw that it worked and that he loved it, but also he turned it over and he saw our story. And uh, when he saw that story, he reached out and asked where the soap was from, if he could get more details. I thought it was a cruel joke because I just quit my job. It was my life now. I was selling soap. (laughs) And um, no, it turned out that, yes, he was working at the corporate headquarters for West Elm. And he was interested in talking to me and Supply about possibly working together. And, you know, I was starting Supply and launching Supply as an e-commerce company. We were starting as a subscription only. We weren't even taking once-off purchases. And so a partnership with them didn't necessarily make, you know, a ton of sense. But we kept talking to them. And West Elm actually ended up launching us. Um, with an event in New York City at their flagship store. Uh, We had a pop-up. We sold out. Um, I think we sold like 40, 
five bottles that day. Not like crazy, but more than we expected to. It was like me and one person. Um, and no family and friends. <laughs> uh, a few family and friends. Good indicator. Um, and then they ended up partnering us with us again on Global Hand Washing Day, a real day, October 15th, everyone. Mark your calendars. And then um, again from Thanksgiving until Christmas. And Thanksgiving to Christmas, I was in store three to four times a week talking to everyone I could about supply, telling our story, explaining how I'd come up with the idea, what I was doing, where we were formulated and crafted and bottled and all of that good stuff. Um, And unbeknownst to me at one of these pop-ups, a reporter from the New York Times had come and purchased from me. And the story itself touched her. Um, And then the product itself worked. And she loved it. She gave it to her family and she gave it to her friends as holiday gifts. And in January of 2017, 24 hours before the New York Times featured Supply, I got a call from the Times uh, confirming my name and the website URL. Um, And it felt really cool. It was amazing, right? To have uh, that happen organically is a dream. To have your first like public press, any kind of press, be the New York Times. It's like a joke. Right. <laughs> um, and yeah, I I mean, I obviously wrote her and said, Florence Fabricant um, said how grateful I was. And she's just been such an advocate for me and for supply and for what we're doing. It's been amazing. And I did not have any kind of prior connection to her or relationship with her. That's re- that's a really cool story. I think it's a testament to two things. One, you showing up, being at that pop-up store four days a week and selling, and also having uh, the West Elm name behind you. It's not like you were at a, a farmer's market trying to sell, and maybe you wouldn't get exposed to a New York Times reporter that way, right? Exactly. Um, and I mean, I think that the New York Times happened, and as soon as that happened, we had a number of retailers reach out. Um, and I kind of stepped back and said, does it make sense for us to, t- to test retail? You know, we've been subscription only. What would that look like? And at that point, sat back down with West Elm and said, you guys have had our backs. You have been there not only for me, but for this company. You have stand not just like behind us, but you've stood next to us and uh, are helping push our mission forward and our educational tools forward and that's a partnership. Like if we launch in the retail space, that's the kind of retail partner I would want to launch with. And so we sat down and started rethinking it um, and imagining, dreaming what it would look like to work with them. And fast forward from January to November of 2017. In November of 2017, we launched internationally with West Elm. We're in their top performing stores throughout um, Canada and throughout the U.S., and we are available online. And you said other retailers started reaching out to you. Um, How did you decide who to go with, and did you end up partnering with others as well? Yeah, so we looked at it from a strategic point of view, and the question was, how, how is supply expanding? Where are we resonating And what was interesting is I launched Supply and I thought that our audience was going to be 
you know, moms <laughs> that really <laughs> cared about their health and the health of their children. And it was interesting. We had one, for one, a lot of guys that were purchasing. Um, we had a lot of interior designers. We had a lot of people that were interested in health and organic beauty um, involved, and a lot of people that were just interested in the impact side. So when it came to retail, there was a unique opportunity to kind of test those value propositions and audiences and with a known market. And so what we did is we identified a few unique areas we were interested in testing and we partnered, and I mean true partnerships, not just you know retail vendor relationships. Um, we partnered with three unique retailers and we launched those in November of 2017. So West Elm was obviously our um, design partner. And then we launched with Credo Beauty. That is our health and wellness, our clean beauty partner. And then we partnered with Feed Projects, and that is our impact partner. And how do you, uh, who in those organizations and those retail organizations did you deal with to structure these partnerships so that it wasn't just a, a standard vendor relationship, but more of a true partnership? What are the people that you worked with? That's like, so interesting. Yeah. yeah. So. Titles. West Elm was different because I kind of had this unique relationship with them that had been built. By the time we launched with West Elm, I felt like I knew their team on the floor working in the New York City floors better than almost anyone that I was talking with in the corporate offices. Um, and I knew a lot of people in the corporate office. But when it came to actually buying, you're talking to sales teams, right? And their buyers. So... Um, when it came to making sure that there's actual product that's on shelves, you're always going to be working with the buyers. Um, when it came to feed, I connected directly with Lauren Bush Lauren. Um, when it came to Credo, I connected with their buyer first. Um, Credo was also really unique. Our kind of partnerships have come through uh, real relationships. And so where West Elm came from me leaving behind, you know, soap on the sink, Credo came about because I actually shop at Credo in New York City. It's off Prince Street. Um, there's also one in Brooklyn, but I buy my moisturizer there. I buy my makeup there and I had a supply tote and the store manager asked me about it. Hmm. Um, our our label says this is more than soap, and so does our swag. And um, so I was carrying a tote that said this is more than soap. The manager said, why is it more than soap? <laughs> and I said, oh, let me tell you about it. <laughs> I love talking about soap. And she ended up after I left, um, I left a card behind, and she connected me with their head buyer wow. in San Francisco. A week and a half later, we were working on paperwork and finalizing things that that is amazing i i think that it's shows how important um the product and the messaging is of course like that story with the tote but also the mission behind your product because that's essentially why you got all of these organic opportunities people wanted to support what it is that you do uh, i know that you are uh, supply is a public benefit corporation um, and can you tell us a little bit about what that means why you became that how you became a public benefit corporation and uh, more specifically, what is the, the, the impact that you're trying to have, uh, the impact side of your business? Because we didn't really dig into that yet. Yep. So Supply is a public benefit corporation. 
So I was living and working over in Africa, saw this product and service gap on the ground and said, this is crazy. How do we fix it? Um, came back to the U.S. with this hope and desire to create positive change, but also knowledge of the negative that can accidentally happen when a for-profit or NGO comes in and doesn't have a clear plan, hasn't pinpointed the problem, doesn't have a theory of change. And so when it came to figuring out you know, what supply was going to do, how we were going to achieve it, and what steps needed to be taken, it was something that I took really seriously. So I went through Acumen Fund um, to pinpoint the problem, uh, to say, is this actually a problem? And then came up with a theory of change which said, obviously, there are inputs along the way. You know, in the case of supply, inputs are, you're going to buy supply. You're going to help with uh, funding, not only impact um, in terms of product solutions, but also in terms of um, service solutions. And then what do those product and service solutions actually result in? What assumptions are there? So when we were looking, basically coming up with that theory of change, making sure that it took into account what we were hoping, but also some of what it was based on so that we could continue to measure. Are we, are we doing well? Are we doing good? Um, where are we messing up? Where could we do better? And getting back to kind of your question, you asked, why is supply a public benefit corporation? Um, a public benefit corporation, for those of you who don't know, it's a variation of a C-Corp. And um, you know, a lot of people ask me, oh, why aren't you a B-Corp? And what I kind of like to say is that for me, the impact side of supply was the reason I got started. It is at the core of everything that we do. And protecting that was really, really important. And so I sat down with my lawyers and asked them, how do I make sure that that's protected? And I came to them honestly saying, I think I should be a B Corp. And they sat down with me and kind of explained in so many words that, you know, a B Corp is kind of like a good housekeeping seal of approval that business leaders can at any point decide, you know what, uh, we don't need it anymore. Um, you pay an annual fee, you get the B Corp. Um, you obviously go through testing and they're, they're, they're reviewing what you're doing. Don't get me wrong. Um, but a public benefit corporation, legally, you are putting core to your business, the impact side of everything that you're doing in the same way that you're putting your own finances at the core of everything that you're doing to say, you know, it's not enough to just make money. It's not enough to just do good, but to create a truly sustainable business, um, a public benefit business. You're not only a for-profit viable business here in the U.S., but globally, you are making a measurable difference, and you're sharing that transparently. Hmm. Um, you know, we talk a lot about uh, pull uh, in our podcast, and when you're creating something, um, a, a really good positive indicator is when it's just starting to spread and people naturally want it. So the, some of the stories that you said are really awesome. You know, you show up in a store with a, with a tote bag and somebody's asking you questions about it and later she follows up. You uh, leave uh, soap behind and somebody uh, sees it and wants to reach out because they really believed in the mission. Um, it, it seemed really unique and compelling and it interesting. 
And something else that some people probably don't know is that you have actually had some celebrities uh, buy your product and get really behind it, um, namely uh, Jesse James and Chevy Chase. Uh, when we talked in the pre-interview, you told us um, you know pretty well. And so tell us how that came about because, um, you know, that is real validation right there. Someone, you know, I you, you said that I can say their name on this podcast, which clearly means that they, uh, they're they very cool with being behind this and love what you do, which is a huge deal, uh, getting support Hopefully from Hopefully they're like cool that. with it. Well, <laughs> if not, not, we'll change the names. <laughs> we'll, we'll work with Chevy's. Well, how, how did uh, Jesse James and how did Chevy Chase find out about you? How did you develop that relationship? So Jesse James... Um, she shared us on social media. Um, both of them have with their networks and followers. But Jesse James, I was actually on a tour to soap uh, <laughs> when we rolled out on uh, in November with our retail partners. I went touring around um, and stopped everywhere from Vancouver to uh, L.A. And when I was in L.A., I was doing a pop-up at West Elm in L.A. And in comes a very nice young lady and she starts talking to me and she actually said that she tried to do something similar after hearing my story um, at one point in a previous life and that she loved what I was doing and honestly it was after a month on the road where I'd slept in my bed one night out of like 30. I had turned 30 while on this <laughs> trip um, and was so exhausted and just wanted to be done with it. I was getting on a flight at like 7 a.m. the next day. I had no idea who she was, um, but I shared, you know, the whole story. She bought a number of boxes. She b- bought them as uh, Christmas gifts for all of her friends. Oh. And um, she left. I-, I didn't think anything of it. And then a little while later, she comes running back in through the door and says, you know, can I take a few photos and take some photos and I continue my day, I wrap up. And at the end of the day, as I'm walking out, one of the other people working on the floor comes over to me and says, you know, did someone purchase from you like a number of boxes? And was she talking to you? She looks kind of like short brown hair. Um, and I'm like, oh yeah. And she was like, I just looked on Instagram. Have you seen, have you seen your website? And I look first at our website and clearly there's a, been a huge spike in sales, right? We had a number of sales just started flowing in and um, then look at Instagram and it turns out that Jesse James has done an Instagram story on supply, wow. giving a shout out um, to me and to everything that we are trying to do and sharing our story and mission, which was just incredible, right? There are such good humans in the world. And I have to say, shout out to her because I needed that pick me up at mm. that point. I was like, entrepreneur low. Yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, so Jesse James, incredible that she did that. It was obviously a dream. Um, Chevy Chase. Yeah, love it. love it. No one likes a dirty dude. Um, <laughs> Tell him where I live so we can hang out. It <laughs> seems really cool. Uh, yeah. He has done a little skit on supply now. Um, he shared us on social media. Thanks to his wife who is an ever doing good, doing well, um, doing better woman. And I care about her so much. She has become such a dear friend to me, um, and has really helped supply and me personally. And yeah, 
Chevy has gotten behind it and has helped use his kind of influence and power for good. And I am forever grateful for that. Um, and there are other people as well that are just, you know, as recognizable or more and, um, that are not out there publicly talking about supply, but are advocating for us behind closed doors that have a sink side, um, I did go to, an, I got invited to an apartment party uh, on the Upper West Side, which I do not often get invited to parties like that, um, and walked in and there was champagne and small bites and <laughs> um, I had to go to the bathroom and I honestly didn't really know how I'd gotten invited or why, but I'm walking down this hallway and I look to the right and there's a Picasso and then I look to the left and there's a Rembrandt and I open the bathroom door and it's so ply and I'm like, oh, there's cool. a McGrew. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I'd say, you know, so much of what we've achieved, whether it's like being on store shelves um, or having likes on Instagram or sales, it's all happening through the people who already purchase, um, who've got our backs and just are ambassadors for us every day. That's that's really cool. Um, clearly an awesome mission to get behind as well. Um, I'm certainly going to change out all the soap after this, I think. Yeah. Uh, last question that I wanted to ask that we like to do with all our guests is, um, you know, no matter what stage of your entrepreneurial journey you're in, there's problems that come up all the time. So right now, what's top of mind for you? What is sort of the biggest problem that you're trying to work with uh, through, I should say, in your business? Hmm, that's a really good question. There's two. One is we are having to shift things in terms of operations. So where things are being bottled is changing. That's a big move. It's exciting. It's scary. It's expensive. Um, and fulfillment, right? We have been growing, 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 and we're reaching a point where we've grown, outgrown um, our current process. And so that's a, a tackle, <laughs> right? It's a challenge. Um, the other thing is growing our team, making sure that um, I'm setting this company up, not just for where we want to be, you know, in a week or a month or a year, but five years, 10 years from now, and making sure that we have the right people on board to do it and are reaching the right people. I think that's not a unique problem. Probably other people out there probably have, um, experience with this and can relate, but those are two big ones for us. Interesting. So with something like fulfillment and I guess figuring out the logistics of mm -hmm. a, a retail and e-commerce business, where do you go? I mean, do you have advisors or mentors and people that have done it? Clearly, there's a lot of companies that, that have faced the same problems that you try to talk to and uh, get some advice from. Yeah. So I have incredible advisors and mentors. I credit the people behind me so much. <laughs> um, one advisor in particular, Alan, um, he has continued to coach me and advise me, um, or listen <laughs> as it is, or were, um, not only offering advice in terms of what options might be out there, but also offering connections. Um, but even more in sitting back and 
forcing me to realize when I don't know, to your point, you know, if I'm looking to tackle logistics and operations that I've never tackled before, I'm probably not the foremost expert (laughs) and figuring out who is right. And getting on the phone with them or sitting down to coffee with them and solving a problem in five minutes that would take me two months. Um, so right now, um, I've, you know, identified three people that have been really helpful in that. Um, one has done stuff in the beverage, uh, space. One has done stuff in health and beauty. Um, and one has done stuff in the retail space. You have to find relevant people that can help you out. You can't do it alone and do it in a silo. You know, that's why a lot of times we say if you're a solo founder and you don't have other team members right away, you have to find advisors and mentors that you can bounce around ideas with because you will get stuck and you don't want to waste your time, like you said, months on a problem that can be solved in a few minutes just by talking to somebody that knows uh, knows what they're doing. Miriam McGrew, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank um, you, guys. Soply. S-O-A-P-P-L-Y box.com. This was a lot of fun. Um, We're going to do two things after this. Uh, Come up with more soap puns (laughs) and watch old Chevy Chase movies. Uh, And by the way, Mary, you're very clean looking today. Thank you for joining us. And we hope to be, we aspire to be as clean as you. And I think that uh, a good start is to change our soap buying habits. And we hope our audience will as well. Thank you. Have a good one. All right.